Kia ora everyone, my name is Gavin McLean, I'm a historian here at the Ministry for Culture and Heritage and it's my pleasant uh, duty to introduce our seminar speaker, Dr Stephen Loveridge, who in the uh, back of the cover of this still in print and very affordable book, um, describes himself as spending altogether too much time in the past. Well, given modern realities of snapper cards, the Paul Henry Show and Come Dine With Me New Zealand, I think it's a very good foxhole to be in. Um, he's a graduate with a PhD from Victoria. Um, he's written quite a number of scholarly articles and things like that. And of course this book, which called to arms New Zealand society and commitment to the Great War, which I really enjoyed. Um, there's a lot of material being published at the moment on campaigns and units and things like that. Uh, Stephen went back to the other 90% who didn't go overseas and asked some questions. And he said, was it a question of the elite, as some people have suggested, or was it uh, foolish cannon fodder? It's actually much more complex than that. And he looked at the cultural and social roots in New Zealand society. And there's just one quote like to read. New Zealand society was neither an autocratic police state controlled from above nor a mad jingoistic mob, although snapshots of it can resemble such descriptions. So it's my pleasure now to turn over to him as he talks about the dynamics of mobilisation and comprehension of New Zealand society at war. Thank you. Well, thank you, Gavin. Uh, no less for the shameless plug of the book, which saves me doing that. And uh, thank you all for joining me. Today I'd like to talk to you about a phenomenon which I argue is crucial for our understanding uh, of New Zealand society at war and can enrich some of our understandings of that subject. So I'd like to talk to you about what I'm terming the dynamics of mobilisation. And I'm using that term in possibly a slightly wider sense uh, than we might conventionally use. I'm thinking in terms of the rallying and movement of armies or perhaps something studied from the halls of political power or the commanding heights of industry and finance. Instead, I'd like to consider mobilisation as having these dimensions, but also a wider social cultural dimension. And I think this is fundamental to our understanding of a war which more or less involved entire societies. So what I'd like to do is to start quite broad with our universal dynamics of mobilisation across belligerent societies and then move in towards New Zealand's experience of this and some of its implications and what it might add to our comprehension. So the First World War saw all belligerent societies engaged in an ongoing process of channeling massive physical, financial and emotional resources into their war efforts. The results of this phenomenon as well as the means by which it operated make mobilisation a crucial concept for the relationship between war and society uh, between 1914 and 1918. A fundamental approach to comprehending the world that went to war and New Zealand's place within it forms something of a challenge to the idea of 1914 as a natural break point in the historical process. Rather than terminating a static Edwardian order, war broke out and missed a world in motion. Towards the dawn of the 19th century, the European powers were all primarily agrarian, uh, ruled by landed aristocracies and historic dynasties, resting a portion of their legitimacy on an established church. A century later, these configurations had either been substantially reworked 
or we're in the midst of an ongoing transformation as the factory, the railway, the mass uh, newspaper, the transatlantic cable, the Nickelodeon, the suburb, growing franchises, expanding education systems and widening civil societies uh, reworked aspects of this world and worked their creative destruction. Then and now, this transformation has been seen as accompanied by shifting boundaries of belonging. This typically saw individuals uprooted from networks heavily based around kinship, face-to-face -face contact and mutual interdependence, and into looser, more impersonal relationships. Modern life promoted a widening of uh, horizons, a convergence of norms across regions, and more broadly conceived collective identities. And various commentators then and now have observed this in uh, statements of the transformation of peasants into citizens, an awakening proletarian consciousness, uh, or ideas of new nationalism in the age. The essential theme was an expansion of identity and loyalties beyond immediate experiences to uh, that famous phrase, an imagined community cited as binding unmet peoples together. However, in 1914, as in previous centuries, the bulk of the European population lived on the land and the rather unmodern figure of the peasant constituted a major demographic. Within the visions of some conservatives, the peasantry were cast as sturdy patriots uh, in touch with the soil and national traditions. However, distance from socialist doctrines could also mean distance from wider cultural social dynamics. Rural weights, measures, dialects, and even currencies could vary from wider standardizations, and this could mean military recruiters or taxmen could be perceived as alien interlopers. Rural socialists voicing anti-war speeches may have been a rarity in the final days of the peace, but the parades and marches and songs witnessed in the urban centres were also rather scarce. This divide should not be presented as total, as to various extents, uh, the rural realm had been breached by wider metropolitan networks. Studies of the French and German peasantry towards the war have observed uh, growing infrastructure, education, military service, mass politics and the mass market as breaching rural remoteness. And the war was also a product of this modernising world as well as interrupting it. With the technical possibilities and innovations of the scientific and industrial revolution turned from mass production towards mass destruction. Modernization was entwined with how effectively belligerents were able to mobilize for war, and in regards to the European continent, an east west gradient has been observed in how effectively belligerents were able to mobilize. Three dimensions of this phenomenon might be considered. The first is evident in the state which formed a critical centre for the vast bureaucratic, economic and social undertaking war on this scale entailed. Those states possessing an efficient interplay uh, between the masses were better placed to take up this challenge. And indeed a whole strain of modernisation theory going back to Max Weber has seen uh, the emergence of rational bureaucracy um, as the highest form of political order, rather depressingly, and is replacing charismatic authority as an essential element of the modern, or what it means to be modern. And political order also became a factor as protracted war put a premium on public morale. In this, states advocating liberal democratic principles have been observed as having greater reserves of legitimacy to draw upon in a sustained war. 
assessing the collapse of the Eastern monarchies against the French and British experiences, for example, Roger Chickering observes that it was more than incidental that these two Western European lands were home to much broader and more centralised parliamentary regimes with traditions of civilian control over the military. Despite the obvious power of centralised authority, the most effective efforts aligned committed societies alongside efficient governments, and the development of a broad sense of public purpose forms a second major level of mobilisation that we need to take account of. This social mobilisation was um, empowered by established social networks, habits of cooperation and common moral obligations that social scientists encapsulate in the term social capital. The development gradient reoccurs here, with modernisation observed as facilitating broader social networks and economies with higher numbers of intermediary positions. Such networks proved essential in coordinating effective social organisation and in influencing behaviour. Indeed, belligerents with healthy civil societies were, as long as the war was deemed legitimate, able to augment their war efforts with higher degrees of cooperation and to pursue them at more intimate levels. These mobilisations provided the muscle for vast volunteer endeavours. Uh, to just use New Zealand as an example, consider the £5.5 million pounds, uh, fundraised over the course of the war, a figure that translates into roughly uh, $484 million in today's terms, from a population of 1.1 million at the time. This is a huge effort. And that figure, that fortune, does not even give um, an understanding of the thousands of hours of unpaid labour poured into various volunteer endeavours. Consider for example the 64,000 knitted and sewn items received by the Red Cross in one six month period. Again this is a huge effort. Uh, put simply, belligerents poured their social as well as their human and physical capital into the war. Both of these levels of mobilisation, the state and civil society, were ultimately fuelled uh, by individual commitments and this makes hearts and minds a third major level uh, that we should consider. Curiously, accounts perceiving modern consciousness as being carried to war also cite this east-west gradient. Richard Venon, for example, uh, makes a critical distinction between how populations drawn from modern and unmodern Europe perceived and thought the war. It was the bourgeoisie of Western Europe that behaved in the most irrational way, continuing to obey orders even when this such obedience was certain to bring about their death. It was the primitive peasant populations who behaved most rationally. They deserted, allowed themselves to be taken prisoner or mutinied. In some interpretations, this distinction is taken as reflecting the capacity of modern institutions, the factory floor, uh, the school lesson, the railway timetable, to instill modern life's demands for increased efficiency, predictability and reliability. Studies of British military discipline, for instance, have dwelled on, and I quote, uh, the bedrock of social cohesion instilled by the nature of British society. And they have noted that the army's ranks were largely constituted by the probably the most highly disciplined industrial labour force in the world. This consciousness has also been considered as reflecting socialisation within civil societies. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender as the Night articulated this understanding in a veteran's assertion that the capacity to accept the costs of the Western Front relied on intimately internalised devotions. This took years, this took religion and years of plenty and tremendous sureties 
and the exact relation that existed between the classes. The Russians and the Italians weren't any good on this front. You had to have a whole-souled sentimental equipment going back further than you could remember. Why, this was a love battle. Assessing this passage, Jay Winter emphasises the sense that the war mobilised a degree of loyalty to community and nation, a commitment to defend what was that could not have been created overnight. It took years, perhaps generations, to secure these bonds. So I'd use those three levels uh, as a broad understanding of the dynamics of mobilisation across societies, and now I'd like to move towards New Zealand and what this might add to it. And these schemas of modernisation and mobilisation offer some context for considering New Zealand's experiences. A product of 19th century colonisation, settler New Zealand has been, along with Australia, described as born modern, uh, that is, as possessing social and political structures crafted by or anticipating the major economic, intellectual and technological forces of the modern age. Before the war, visiting, various visiting commentators advanced ideas of New Zealand as the birthplace of the 20th century, the political brain of the modern world, or the social laboratory from which the world could learn much. Certainly the second half of the 19th century had witnessed advancing modernisation, rework older patterns of Māori traditions, frontier existence and the natural landscape. Booming urban environments mark a primary indicator of this reworking. By 1911, the urban population had overtaken the rural, and just under a third of the population resided in the four uh, major centres of Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin. While near half the male workforce was employed on the land, many men, and increasingly unmarried women, uh, laboured in the new modern workplaces of the factory, the waterfront, on the railroad, as shop assistants, as clerks, as public servants, and within the professions. Development, however, was not a phenomenon confined to urban environments. John Mulgan's Man Alone describes the imposition of farming on the landscape as seeing a new country open out like the raw edges of a wound. Other aspects of this rural uh, world complement Mulgan's themes of modern alienisation. Modernised agriculture is described as as much as like working in a factory as anything else, and the perils and audacity of pioneering are presented as belonging to a vanished age against prevailing petty bourgeoisie ambitions. W.H. Oliver once sketched pre-war New Zealand farmers with a comparable array of descriptions. And I quote, something of a peasantry, uh, but a peasantry sophisticated to the use of machines, and suspicious of the townsman whether he was a banker who held an overdraft or a worker who struck for a raise. <coughs> A tier of North Island electorates were dominated by these people, and in the 20th century, a new political party emerged from its prosperity. And such descriptions hint at an insular and distinctive condition, uh, but one economically and politically linked to wider society. One significant force behind the widening of horizons and shared experiences of this modern world is very apparent in the modern mass newspaper. The 1877 integration of New Zealand's growing telegraph network into the wider imperial system, uh, the Victorian internet, permitted information to travel the length of the empire in hours and for distant events to become local news. One example here of a crowd in Christchurch, I believe, gathering to see the war news which has been posted here. Uh, but the more you look, you'll see uh, various interests of people and sometimes caught up in this world. You see this guy at the back here 
and sometimes looking quite thoughtful uh, about what is being presented. Mass circulation further empowered the press, with one pre-war commentator observing the newspaper as having a very high place in New Zealand. Everyone reads it, and there are few people, ignorant or old-fashioned enough, not to be interested in the news. The significance of the newspaper in modern life continued into 1914-1918, with the conflict claimed as the first media war, in which mass media critically influenced mass participation, as well as mass spectatorship. The complexities of modern life and modern imagined communities are highlighted in how the capacity to renegotiate space, time and potentially communal boundaries also transcended New Zealand. Thus the expansion of national infrastructure, the decline of the provincial system, the centralisation of political power and a developing sense of national identity developed alongside an increasing orientation towards the British metropole. This is apparent in the expansion of transnational infrastructure the growth of New Zealand British trade, the dispatch of New Zealand troops to wars of empire, and the rise of a greater British nationalism within the sentiments of mass culture and mass politics. This phenomenon is not confined to New Zealand and can be observed in Australia, uh, Canada, Newfoundland, and more problematically in South Africa and Ireland. However, New Zealand has been tagged as the extreme case and it has been noted as no coincidence that the smallest and most isolated of the white dominions was also the most effusively loyal to Britain and the most determined to prove its worth to her. The economic, political and cultural links within this global system came into play during the war and efforts made to protect it provide one stream of evidence for the claim that war for Europe in 1914 meant war for the world. As highlighted in regards to Europe, metropolitan networks could advance with uneven strides, and the Māori population offers a fascinating case study, uh, as iwi responded with varying strategies of what James Balich has termed engagement and disengagement. Disengagements were underwritten by measures of economic autonomy, physical isolation, the enduring authority of tribal institutions, and notably in Taranaki, the King Country, Waikato and the Urawera, enduring bitterness around land confiscation and the aftermath of the New Zealand Wars. However, by 1912, more Māori were attending public schools than native schools, a professional class of Māori schoolmasters, clergymen, nurses, solicitors and doctors had emerged, and the Young Māori Party was working to improve Māori health and living standards within the halls of power. The varying responses Māoridom gave regarding the war built on these idiosyncrasies, with some iwi actively seeking involvement uh, with various commentators, Māori and non-Māori alike, uh, casting the volunteers of the Māori Pioneer Battalion, bolstered by Cook Islanders and Nguyens, as representing Māori martial excellence and solidarity with the Crown. Apathy and dissent from other iwi saw Māori enlistment stand at proportionally half that of the Pākehā population, and a quarter of Māori balloted refused service or remained unlocated. So, the manner in which New Zealand mobilised is indicative, I would argue, of the state of New Zealand society towards the war. In regard to the first level of mobilisation, uh, that of the state, William Pember Reeves once noted that in the colonies, governments are, rightly or wrongly, expected to be of use during an emergency, and under the heading of emergency, dull times are included. <laughs> Certainly, conceptions of active government had been established through state roles in migration, national development and social welfare, while drives to professionalise and rationalise state institutions, augmented state authority 
and capacities for involvement in national life. However, the modernisation of the New Zealand state was accompanied by broadening accountability, meaning that the legitimacy to wield political power and political authority increasingly rested on mass opinion and sanction. A crowd gathered in 1911 to see the uh, results of the election. The development of the political franchise offers the clearest example of this, and New Zealand stood in the vanguard of democratisation in the later 19th century. The secret ballot was introduced after 1870, property qualifications were abolished after 1879, the franchise expanded to include Māori men in 1867 and all women in 1893. The war vividly enhanced both aspects of political modernity. Increasingly systematic use was made of state authority in efforts to rally and regulate the public body, and the repressive edge of these powers has often been uh, remarked upon, or was often at the forefront of recollections. And there is a basis for this. Observations of New Zealand's war regulations note that the man who drafted them, the Solicitor General Sir John Salmon, had a low threshold of pain in balancing legality against expediency, and have noted that regulations to suppress opposition emerged as, and I quote, a small industry. Examples include intensified surveillance of public meetings and private correspondence, raids on union halls, hundreds of charges under sedition regulations, a police operation in the Urawera likened to a military expedition, and an experiment to ship 14 conscientious objectors to the front uh, to try and coerce them into service. Simultaneously, the enduring links between the authorities and the wider public are evident in the shared costs of social mobilisation. Between them, the 80 members of Parliament had 76 sons at the front, and some members, including Gordon Coates, William Henry Dillon Bell, William Downey Stewart, and Thomas Seddon, would enlist themselves. Moving to the second level of mobilisation, I've emphasised in my book, as Gavin touched on, that civil society formed a crucial site in understanding how society mobilised and how meanings were layered onto the war effort. According to Miles Fairburn's evaluation of the foundations of modern New Zealand society, before 1880 New Zealand was characterised by atomised or weakly bonded communities with isolation, transience and extreme individualism keeping social ties few and fleeting. Towards the turn of the 20th century however, many observe a flourishing of communal engagement. Trade unions, friendly societies, cooperatives, mechanical institutes, sports clubs and a vast variety of hobby and interest groups proliferated. So too did business and professional associations. The better off supported benevolent societies and hospitals for the poor. In the absence of an established church, a great variety of Christian denominations fought for adherence among an increasingly sceptical populace. These networks bonded individuals into larger communal life and formed decentralised sites for wartime self-mobilisation. This dynamic could have various impacts on the social political structures, uh, which I'll return to momentarily, but in regards to rallying people, the established places of, say, local leaders, teachers, priests, uh, newspaper editors, friends and families, and the place of these individuals in community and individual life potentially granted them an enormous influence. This extends to the powerful and heartfelt meanings they could evoke, and this aspect of mobilisation includes that of cultural conventions and sensibilities, which I'll touch on again later. 
To turn to our third level of mobilisation, uh, we might consider how New Zealanders were bonded and socialised within the customs and circumstances of these social structures. The formative experiences of those born between, let's say, roughly 1888 and 1895, who constituted the bulk of uh, enlistees in the NZEF, are of particular interest. While the processes that make people creatures of their time are punctuated by all manner of exceptions and idiosyncrasies, I could fill the remainder of my time with caveats about the difficulty of um, looking at public and private sentiments and how exactly they do or don't match. Having said that, the broad outlooks, habits and norms instilled by New Zealand society may be glimpsed in wartime circumstances. Christopher Pugsley has noted that the percentage of New Zealand court-martials to troops was less than one-third of that of the Australian rate and half of that of the Canadian. Likewise, balloted New Zealanders were less likely than Australians or Canadians to appeal for exemptions. And that is despite Australian appeals being for combat uh, training within Australia rather than for overseas service and in all possibility a combat role. Together these three levels of mobilisation, state, civil society and internalised hearts and minds, worked in intense mobilisation within New Zealand. These levels of mobilisation worked an intense uh, result. Consider New Zealand's enlistment machinery, uh, the wheels of which were turned by government officials, representatives from local bodies and recruitment groups, military personnel and members of official boards established to assess medical states and to hear uh, exemption appeals. By November 1918, over 100,000 individuals had moved through the wheels of this machinery, appearing very small in a war of big numbers. Of the 243,376 men deemed eligible by virtue of their sex and age, some 124,211 were enlisted and over 100,000 embarked. This represents roughly 10% of the total population, 19.4% of the male population or near 51% of the eligible male population. As stated elsewhere, if you're male and aged between 20 and 45, uh, you might flip a coin to see whether you're going into khaki. And if you're not within those categories, uh, you might flip with someone who is that you know in mind. And of course, alongside this, over 600 uh, New Zealand women served as nurses, standing beside those less visible women who travelled overseas to take up semi-official or volunteer roles. Financing this effort entailed similarly massive investments. In 1921, the monetary cost of New Zealand's mobilisation was calculated at £81.5 million, roughly $7 billion in today's terms. Uh, to give that figure some context, by 1881, the Public Works Development Scheme of the Vogel era uh, had borrowed some £21 million, roughly £3.5 in today's terms to develop the country's transportation and communication networks, to modernise uh, economic infrastructure and to entice migration. Hypothetically, the money poured into New Zealand's war effort could afford two Vogel-era sized schemes in economic modernisation, the development of social amenities, tax cuts, take your pick, and still leave a few hundred million dollars in change. War on this scale required similarly immense emotional resources and the investment of meaning was intimately entwined with this commitment of blood and treasure. 
This cultural mobilisation was driven by decentralised support across civil society and buttressed by official regulation of information. Its results served to transform the war effort into a cause and to redeem suffering as sacrifice, achieving this as effectively as it did by swaying hearts and minds. In regard to the latter, much turned on the case of the war as a necessary uh, resistance against an aggressive enemy. Sensationalist propaganda of Germans as Huns or Hunnish uh, barbarians, such as this example from New Zealand Truth, uh, represent a facet, not the total, of this case and pandered to the genuine outrage actual German actions, ambitions and atrocities stirred. Moreover, this mobilisation evoked heartfelt sentiments of what was felt to be worth fighting for, with significant examples including regional, national and imperial patriotism, gendered or ethnic identities, martial values, uh, personal relationships and theological traditions. Near paradoxically, wartime conditions demonstrated the potential to both rally societies and to fragment their material and moral bonds. Before the war, Ivan Bloch had dwelled upon uh, this latter possibility in his book Is War Now Impossible, uh, the abridged copy which came out in 1899. Foreseeing that a conflict between industrial powers possessing modern firepower would become a protracted process of grinding destruction, Bloch contemplated the array of physical, economic and emotional strains sustained commitment would entail, and asked, how long do you think your social fabric will remain stable under these circumstances? Now, post-war reflection on Bloch has often dwelled upon his mistaken assumption that belligerents would be unable to bear the massive financial and human costs uh, this would entail beyond a short duration. Indeed, in some circumstances, though, uh, costs could galvanise convictions. Reports of the Gallipoli landing casualties and the sinking of the Lusitania in May 1915, for example, actually saw a real stimulation to um, recruitment and commitment to the war. Wartime New Zealand would seem to offer a curious perspective on this idea of rallying and upheaval. And against other belligerents would appear to be characterised by a relative stability. One trans-Tasman account observes the war as forming a unifying event in New Zealand against a fragmenting uh, event in Australia. And a wider study of efforts to implement conscription across the English-speaking democracies observes New Zealand as bookending one end of the spectrum and as encountering the least turmoil. However, the case for relative stability does have its limits in conveying wartime life. Sustaining the war effort inherently entailed individuals and communities making an array of minor and major sacrifices rendered in physical, emotional and economic terms, and strains fueled tensions, often building on existing fault lines. The official estimates of increases to the cost of living stands at 39.35%, and one investigation of wartime economics concludes, it is likely unskilled workers and their families lived pretty near the bone. Many families experience the human cost of protracted industrial warfare as individual disfigurements and deaths rippled through the social networks people weave, diminishing in various ways and to various extents the lives of others. Further tensions reflect not just the absolute demands of the war, but the equitable sharing of sacrifices. 
These dynamics laid the ground for backlashes against any seeming to break with this accord, and the dramatic presence of shirker antitypes in social and political uh, expression is indicative of this. A similar dynamic emerged in regard to the mixed uh, consequences of the war economy. Not everyone lived near the bone during the war. By some gauges, social affluence and the development of a consumer society continued apace or even accelerated during wartime. Access to relative luxuries such as beer, tobacco and sugar fluctuated around pre-war levels, uh, very different from other belligerent societies. Money wagered at the race courses steadily increased. Cinema attendance rapidly expanded. Private bank deposits rose from £27 million to £45 million, and one furniture manufacturer noted unprecedented orders, often from working people, and often for astonishingly costly articles such as Chesterfields. Seeking to trace the varying effects of the wartime economy, a government statistician proposed that the major economic winners were those living on returns from investments, uh, who experienced enhanced returns, professionals, who often benefited from the enlistment of their competition, and those paid hourly, who gained higher wages, considerable overtime earnings, and the leverage of labour shortages. Also noted as the most affected were those on fixed pay, who often missed out on many of these benefits. Such disparate outcomes rattled community cohesion, adding accusations of profiteering to wartime discourse. Uh, you remember I mentioned a while ago that social mobilisation can have various other impacts and flow-on effects on your social fabric. Uh, two examples of this, or two major demonstrations of this, are available in Catholic-Protestant tensions over the politics of sacrifice and social reactions against those associated with enemy powers, with those associated with Germany offering the most salient example. The activities and attitudes of the anti-German leagues rather, offers an overview of those groups' linkage of ethnicity with loyalty and endorsing suspicion and hostility towards individuals and objects associated with enemy powers. Likewise, the Protestant Political Association advanced an understanding of the war in which Catholics were a hidden hand, benefiting from Protestant sacrifice and threatening national interests. The PPA blossomed in the latter years of the war and represents an even greater mass movement which eroded social bonds. Both associations demonstrate that, as with human and physical capital, social capital can be channeled towards benign and destructive purposes. Likewise, the demands of mobilisation were, were neither uncontested nor unconditional. Uh, some social reactions mixed criticism, sometimes fierce criticism, with the demands of the demands of the war effort with degrees of cooperation. The Second Division League and the Reductionist Movement offer examples of conditional consent, organising to negotiate the particulars of balloting. Other critics called for improved pay for soldiers, uh, the conscription of capital alongside men, or denounced conscription as reactionary militarism intended to, and I quote, fight the, not the Kaiser, but to fight trade unionism and the working classes. Consequent activism, unrest, and the emergence of an anti-conscription league uh, raised government fears of radicalization, strikes, and go-slows in strategic industries. The eight industrial disputes of 1915 grew to 15 in 1916, 45 in 1917, and stood at 40 in 1918. Over this period, the number of workers involved grew from 295 to over 4,000. 
While wages and hours were cited as the main cause, opposition to conscription uh, was also mentioned, and between November 1916 and February 1919, coal mine strikes against conscription saw 181 days lost. In places, conditional support blurred into direct dissent, which rejected the cause as well as the conduct of the war effort. This manifested from diverse positions, ranging from non-ideological to complex mixes of pacifist, socialist, theological and identity politics. Elements of the labour movement denied the war's legitimacy, denouncing it as an imperialist capitalist affair, and by 1916 parts of political labour were calling for a negotiated peace. Feminist elements evoked a biological impulse against militarism, non-conformist creeds cited religious objections to service, and some saw degrees of friction between their ethnic identity and participation, such as Irish rejection of an English war or Maori rejection of a Pākehā war. Narrowing in even more. I've talked a lot of mobilisation uh, from the mechanics of political and sociological theory, and I'd like to come to a close by changing gear. Frederick Manning once wrote that war is waged by men, not by beasts or by gods. It is a peculiarly human activity. With a little adaption, I'd make a similar observation about the dynamics of mobilisation. Mobilisation was driven not by beasts, not by gods, but by people, as real as we are today, uh, living in a world often identifiable as our own. All images taken are not so far from our current location on this very earth in a world that is still identifiable uh, as our own. And in this sense, the subject of mobilisation is not confined to the halls of political power, the commanding heights of finance and industry, or to the rallying, training and mo movement of armies. It extends to the intellectual, the cultural, the communal and the intimately personal planes of existence, and is linked to a range of sentiments and expressions from high ideals uh, and sacred meanings to personal connections to the utterly banal and profane elements of everyday life. It is chivalric ideals, advertisements for flower, sporting metaphors, children's drawings sent to fathers at the front, drawing birds in effectively the same way kids do today. Hence the concept provides context for a variety of developments. Consider for example the mobilisation of understandings that female duties included a provocative to set the uh, sorry, to set the moral pace regarding masculine behaviour and social propriety. Commentators as dissimilar as the Minister of Defence and the Maryland worker, hardly a natural alliance, concurred that women formed the vanguard of anti-German activity and similar observations have been made in regard to anti-Schurke activity and white feather distribution. Uh, although that was widely contested and condemned, white feather distribution stands as a particularly spiteful incarnation of the worldview. Or consider the continuity in something much smaller, uh, how cartoonists like William Blomfeld uh, extended their pre-war depictions about worthy and unworthy masculinity from debates around compulsory military training, as you can see on the left, to a wartime manifestation uh, of the soldier and the shirker. I think we can see some sort of uh, mobilisation of themes and techniques going on here. And in this, mobilisation is a broad and versatile tool, which might provide some framework and some insight on the society which entered and endured the Great War. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, now time for questions and comments. Excellent talk. Thank you very much. Um, I came with a preformed question, really. I suppose I'd still ask it, really. The, it, I'd read that for many people in the war, um, it was the first um, experience of mass welfare that took them out of poverty. And, and it sounds very much as if it could be the case, um, at least in terms of European peasants as opposed to New Zealand peasants um, or, or working class or whatever, wherever. Um, did, it, did it, along that dimension, um, develop the welfare state? Does that take you beyond the history that you're writing about? Did, did it impact on further concepts of how you process people, say, through mass welfare or health programs and whatever? Yeah, excellent question. Um, this has been a, an aspect that has really developed in regard to European belligerence, is that many people looking over demography realise that uh, a lot of soldiers serving on the Western Front were actually getting better health care and dietary requirements uh, than they were getting in civilian life, which should probably tell us not how cushy the Western Front was, uh, but the, the squalor of a lot of the, uh, the, the working class existed in. Um, the reoccurring theme in a lot of British working class commentary is that privates coming back from the front uh, were often physically bigger because they were getting meat and protein regularly, um, something that they weren't getting in civilian life. In regards to New Zealand, I don't think that this would extend very far, although there hasn't been that much work uh, looked into it. The general theme seems to be for New Zealand and Australian soldiers uh, on service um, was a role somewhat comparable to the, the folklore around US servicemen stationed in New Zealand uh, during the First World War, uh, a bit more posh, a bit more swanky. Um, I don't know where you upload this, the, the quote around a lot of New Zealand soldiers was fucking five bob a day men, um, in that New Zealand soldiers were paid much better than British privates. In regards to the development of a welfare state, um, I couldn't give you an overly qualified answer, but there has been a lot of reassessment on this around um, how repatriation worked in New Zealand. And one interesting example I'm particularly thinking of came out in a book reassessing William Massey's um, ministership, which was arguing that actually we can probably see some of the policies enacting during this time as probably um, preempting the policies pursued by First Labour. But I think the debate on that will go on a bit more. New Zealand being one of the few countries where women had the vote, did this make a great deal of difference to how the war was waged and how it was regarded? Uh, another very interesting question. Um, I'm thinking particularly of feminists like Anna Stout, uh, who tended to really emphasise the right of women to wield the franchise on the idea that women had proved themselves dutiful um, compatriots in New Zealand public life. and in Stout's case, very much mobilised that during the war. Uh, she was arguing during the Boer War that New Zealand women had buckled on the armour of more of their menfolk than any other country, um, any other dominion in that conflict, and very much continued that into the First World War. She became the president of the Women's Anti-German League uh, as her commitment to the cause, really, as well as setting up many welfare and patriotic leagues. Um, so, I mean, there is that sort of angle of it. Um, the franchise is linked with involvement in public life, and in that, I think you could certainly trace that. I would be very interested to see some sort of um, comparative account of, of how that differs, but as of yet, the work hasn't really been done. 
I wonder about the nature of New Zealand society. It always struck me as being quite intimate at that time. So when you read soldiers' letters and diaries, there's a lot of talk about people they went to school with, people they knew from down the road or knew their parents. And I wonder how much impact that had on the informal sort of social bonds or ability to actually put pressure on deviants, i.e. deviants on the home front who wouldn't enlist and deviants on the battlefield who might run away. Mm. In both cases, I think probably in New Zealand, there was a lot of weight on these people. They would be identified and people knew who they were and knew who their families were. That's interesting your comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of analysis has gone on centralised authority, um, which is kind of a tiny axe I grind in my book, um, I think. And there's, there's a reason for this. Governments are very salient. Governments enact laws. Governments have various powers that are very uh, obvious. But I would probably argue that the, the more pressing issue is the more invisible, um, not so much the grand manipulators, but the humble and ordinary manipulators, the dirty look you get in the village square, the white feathers left in your mailbox, uh, these forms of horizontal rather than vertical aspects of social control that are fundamental for understanding wartime New Zealand society and how mobilisation worked. Absolutely. And this also extends to the front. Um, the, the society in which you're socialised in, yes, it's punctuated by all manner of exceptions and idiosyncrasies. Uh, yes, we can always think of ways, but it still, to some extent, and to some extent very real, makes us the people we are and uh, how we look at the world and how we react. I think we should bear that in mind in looking at New Zealand 100 years ago.